The Dudes of Kung Fu podcast is brought to you by Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine. In celebration of their newly launched WCI newsstand platform, Wing Chun Illustrated is giving listeners of the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast a free one-month all-access subscription. Go to wcinewsstand.com and click the register button in the upper right corner. Use voucher code FREE4U. That's F-R-E-E, the number four, and the letter U, all caps. Don't forget to activate your account by clicking the link in the welcome message. The Dudes of Kung Fu love Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine. Hey, all. We have a brand new exciting offer from Audible just for our awesome fans. Listen to the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast and go to www.audibletrial.com slash D-O-K-F and get a free 30-day free trial and one free audiobook. I use my audio account every day for my commute to and from work. I love listening to audiobooks and it really makes my commute so much better. Right now, I'm currently listening to Quitters Never Win by UFC champion Michael Bisping. This offer is available right now only for dudes of Kung Fu listeners. So remember, go to audibletrial.com slash D-O-K-F after the podcast and sign up today. There's no commitment and you have nothing to lose. Sign up today. Now let's get into the podcast. Dudes of Kung Fu. Please welcome your hosts, Alex Richter and Big Sean Madigan. Hey everybody, and welcome to this week's podcast. Uh, I hope everybody had a good week. I'm sitting here with my uh, my good good friend and Alex. <laughs> <laughs> we have our, we have our friend John Turnbull from uh, Cleveland, Ohio, joining us tonight. Hello, Cleveland. Hey, Hey guys, how are you doing? <laughs> John, John's been on the podcast with us uh, once or twice. He's um, he he sits in with us periodically. He's he is one of the the uh, biggest Patreon supporters we have, and he absolutely is probably the biggest fan of the, of the podcast in existence today. So um, you know, uh, so we love to have him on, and sometimes he just sits in and. He just kind of sits there and be, be quiet during the whole podcast yeah. as we're recording. He's kind of like, kind of like a voyeur of our pod podcast. We, we have he's like he's there in the corner watching while we talk. Like. <laughs> I, I do wish that he would wear clothes though, Alex. I mean, it's like it's like you know, kind of it's like Alex, you know, John. At least put on a shirt. You know what I mean? It's like. <laughs> Yeah, it's always, always so. Yeah, I just need the gymnastics uh, <laughs> scoring like you know ten, nine, eight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and so often, that, uh, often we'll have like a little chit chat before the podcast, and so like you know John will like kind of we'll we'll, we'll chat for a little bit, uh, which is something that we do with our Patreon supporters at a certain level, and um, I think John knows that you guys are hopefully in for a treat tonight because Sean and I were going at it before we went on the air today. <laughs> I was just it's like, <laughs> he's taking shots at me as if like you started it. Like as, as if he had, a sh- as, as if we, if we had a war, uh, uh, let's put it this way. If Alex and I got into a fight, I'm an old fat bastard. He kicked the shit out of me. We both know it. He's comfortable with that. I'm comfortable with that. But if it was a war of words, this motherfucker is mine. <laughs> I would own Alex. I would own Alex Lies. like you own a dog. It's brutal. 
If me and Alex were in jail and it was a verbal contest, he'd be Mrs. Madigan. Okay? You, you know what's funny, Mrs. though? I, I don't really remember that being the nature of the conversation. Um, just to let our audience in, um, Sean asked John if he knew about an app called The Waze. <laughs> I didn't say the jerk Like off. the Facebook. I just said Waze. And it's like, yeah, we've known oh. about that for five years, like the rest of the world. Tell us about Waze, Sean. <laughs> so I don't know. Alex, I don't know Alex what kind of war Alex of words you were a, winning. Alex took like a pill tonight or something. It's it's actually awesome to have some sort of personality. It's 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 it's, it's kind of refreshing. I've spent the last two days cooped up in my home. My daughter, uh, what, what my youngest daughter, bo- both of my daughters are actually kind of sick this week. You know, once they go to school, they pick up all that nonsense. And on Tuesday morning, my daughter literally coughed and it was like projectile spit flying through the air at really slow motion, landed right in my mouth. And a day later, uh, I had a fever. I had chills. So I was cooped up for two days. So I feel like this is the result of a bit of cabin fever. Now, Friday night, I get to lash out on Sean. So uh, uh, all in oh, all, boy. it's a pretty good week. <laughs> It's, it was worth being sick for two days <laughs> to find out that oh, Sean just man. found out about Waze. <laughs> no, I didn't just find out about Waze. Look how oh de- my l- God. Listen to how defensive he is. What this a is so jerk great. off this guy is. <laughs> I didn't just find out about it. I've known about it for like a month. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know oh about Waze? Oh, my God. He's such a... He's just... I explained to John, I didn't know if they had that kind of technology in Cleveland. He's from, he's from Cleveland. So I, I try when I speak to John to just use smaller words. Wow. And, wow. <laughs> now, okay, folks. John clearly is smarter than both me and Alex. I'm just having fun here. But he still lives in Cleveland. So it's just, you know. That was a choice. And clearly when you listen to his accent, he's not from Cleveland. He made that choice. That was a A choice. That was a sincere choice to move there. Sincere choice. Like, yeah, it's 30 years now in Cleveland. And you're like a big shot in Cleveland in your area, right? You. In what sense? Well, I Uh, I know you work, like, you work to, like, build Cleveland up and build your neighborhood up because. I've seen you take part in some sort of like um, community projects and things. Right. So, yeah, I'm in the uh, the Rotary Club here, kind of the biggest Rotary Club in the, the Northeast Ohio area. And I was president last year of it. So, yeah, yeah, we do uh, what we can for the community. And I was in, uh, I happened to win a raffle we do every year to Napa Valley, which I was at recently to uh, raise money for the local food bank. So, yeah. It's like, you're like a good guy. I try to be, yeah. You know, Alex, take notes. I was, sorry, a good I, person sounds. Sorry, I wasn't paying any attention. I apologize. <laughs> see, see what I mean, John? When I tell you Alex is a dick, this is why. This is exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Listen, you know, listen. You build up your community. Alex runs into Hong Kong in the middle of a riot. It's just, you know. The best time. So, uh, so speaking of, speaking of Hong Kong, you were going to share a story with us about uh, uh, that you heard from Chan Chi Man. Yes, about yes. The Man. Uh, yeah. So um, as I mentioned in the last show, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm starting this documentary project and uh, spent a lot of time with Sifu Chan Chi Man and, you know, I had the chance to kind of hear a lot of his stories. I mean, many of the stories he's told me already, but this time we got it um, in front of the camera 
And, uh, you know, it's so great to hear him tell these stories because he had told me stuff from his childhood. He told me about how he met uh, Yip Man, how he learned from Yip Man, all these kind of things. And then he, I remember he had actually told me the story before, uh, but we got him to tell the story on camera. So um, apparently, uh, yeah, as I've mentioned before, uh, Sifu Yip Man was a bit of a gambler, which is kind of an, a typical Chinese trait especially at that time Chinese especially Hong Kong Chinese love gambling and so at that time one of the big things that you gambled on besides uh, horses was dog racing and most of I think at that time the dog races were in Macau which is kind of an island about an hour boat ride away from Hong Kong and Macau is kind of like the Vegas of Hong Kong so that's where all the seedy stuff happens in Macau so um, apparently uh, you know Yip Man goes to the coffee shop in the morning with uh, Sifu Chan Chi Man and he goes to get a newspaper because the newspaper has all the tips on like what dogs to bet on and all that kind of stuff, right? So um, according to Sifu Chan Chi Man, he was kind of like, you know, walking with his Sifu. They went to the coffee shop and uh, Sifu Yip Man was wearing the very traditional Chinese clothing that you always see him wear. The what they call Tong Zhong. Tong Zhong is the, you know, classic Chinese, you know, frog button top and, and, and whatnot with the pockets. And Grandmaster Yip Man had a Parker Fountain Pen. And uh, a Parker Fountain Pen is apparently a very expensive brand of fountain pen, especially at that time. And he had one in his top pocket. And so Chen Chi Man told me the story that while they were there at the coffee shop, uh, Grandmaster Yip Man kind of like was looking over at the uh, at the newspaper and then a pickpocket saw Yip Man's Parker Fountain Pen in that top pocket and then decides that he's going to kind of go next to Yip Man and kind of get the thing out of his pocket. So according to Chan Chi Man, the, the, the pickpocket used the newspaper to kind of put he put a newspaper in front of Yip Man's chest to kind of cover his hand like because it was a crowded area. So he put a newspaper there and like was sneaking his hand behind it to lift the pen and apparently Yip Man felt it right away and put his hand right on the pocket. So like basically trapped the guy's hand and then gave the guy a kick out of nowhere. Like just boom, kicked the guy and the guy fell down and like rolled <laughs> twice over. And Chen Chi Man kind of was startled because he didn't even know that, you know, something had happened. And so he he basically goes to go chase the guy and Yip Man grabbed Chen Chi Man and told him like, no, 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 no need to chase him. He's uh He's already been kicked. Let's just continue on. And he said after, like, Yip Man literally kicked the guy. The guy rolled over. When Chan Chi Man went to chase him, he just grabbed Chan Chi Man and said, no need, no need, because the guy started running away. And he said Yip Man just carried on as if nothing happened. And like, That's awesome. And I was like, what a badass story, right? And that was kind of a segue uh, because I asked him, like, you know, um, you know, you trained with him. What were his, you know, what kind of skills did he have or what skills did he have that maybe people don't know about? And one of the things he said that his kicking skill was quite extraordinary, um, although many people don't know it because he didn't know his showcase, but that he had one time firsthand witnessed his story. And then he told that story, which was just like amazing. So that what a badass story and, and way cooler than half the crap they come up with in the IP men movies. It's just like cool to see an old man. So like, just like in such a chill way, kick some pickpocket. Like, I just thought it was such a great story. You know, and I, this is slightly off topic from this, but it's an idea I got from it. With Chum Q, which is, uh, I know someone's coming out with a Chum Q book. I'm, I'm sure it must cover this in it. Mm -hmm. in, in, in Chum Q, there's the, 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 the kicks are taught two different ways. 
right? There's always like that side, either a sidekick type of kick or like that turning kick. Do you know, am I, am I making sense? Are you, are you talking about the last kick, the one that's on the left side? Is yes. The last part of the fourth? Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. So there's, there's two, there's, I always, it always breaks down to one of those two kicks. Right. So, um, actually, it's it, it, interesting you should say that. As a matter of fact, I do talk about that topic in my Chum Q book. I have it uh, an extra chapter at the end because, obviously, one of the big questions students always ask is, you know, everything in the Wing Chun forms in general is symmetrical. So why do we only have the left kick in that form, like, on the left side, and why don't we also have it on the right side? And it's kind of like I, I call it the, the curious case of the missing slant kick, right? And so I discuss it because there are a lot of various takes on why there's only a left side slant kick. Um, if you look at the, the Yip Chun footage of Yip Man shot shortly before the old man passed away, the, the one that everyone can see on YouTube, um, that uh, footage, Yip Man very clearly does the slant kick. He, he, in other words, he does not do the... Um, like he does not do a side kick. He 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 kind of does that kind of slantward kick or whatever, right? Okay, so the podcast just got a lot better. <laughs> I only say that because Alex is not there. <laughs> For some reason, Alex has dropped out, and uh, I just think this is awesome. As a matter of fact, this is the most intelligent Alex has ever sounded while doing the podcast. So uh, I'm hoping he jumps back in here, and. Uh, Oh boy, this is just this is just freaking awesome. So, John, how are you? <laughs> In your lineage, the last kick. Yes. So, first of all, can you state your lineage again, just so people know? So it's uh, through Lung Sung, uh, Kenneth Chung, Eddie Chung, and then my instructor was Carl Tachera. So the last kick in Chum Q. Do you yes. do a slant kick or a side kick type of? So the last one, it's a slant kick. It can also be almost like a inside-out crescent kick. Correct. And that's what you do. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so my lineage, and my lineage, how I learned it, it's more like a side kick. You okay. turn, throw, like, it's more like a side kick. But I, I, I see people do both, um, but I was taught that, so that's, that's what I do. And I find that interesting because it just seems to be like in Wing Chun, there either are a million, million differences in a form or they're, or they're exactly the same. And to notice that like everybody's forms are different, but they break down to one of those two different kicks. Right. I find mm -hmm. that interesting. Um, but you know what we're going to do now? We're going to listen to this ad. Hold on one second, folks. Hey all, have you heard that John Crucione of Laughing Dragon Wing Chun has an app exclusively for iPad about the science behind Dim Mok as it applies to Wing Chun? Dim Mok is the art of hitting weak spots or sensitive spots on the human body. Dim Mok, as taught by John Crucione, is considered one of the highest forms of Kung Fu target practice. He explains it in a clear scientific and anatomical principles and not just mystical theory or kung fu movie entertainment like the five point palm exploding heart technique nonsense. The art teaches you how to apply the principles of real dim mock within your system of Wing Chun. This app is unique because it breaks down two different lineages 
of the wooden dummy form and teaches the most common dim mock techniques of the dummy form and how to make it work. Contained within the app are videos, photos, theory, and points which are must-have for any Wing Chun practitioner who wants to elevate their skill to a higher level. And version 2.0 of the app is on its way out. It's available in the iTunes store for iPad only. And folks, it's just such a cool thing to have, you know, an old science of Dimmock brought together with the new science of an iPad. This is a, I, I've seen the app, it's fantastic, and uh, it really is a must-have for, for Wing Chun Kung Fu practitioners. I hope you all enjoy. All right, so, um, yeah, by the way, uh, I kind of, I posted this on my social media um, I was a little salty because the uh, the Bruce Lee social media, like the Instagram or whatever, they made two pretty kind of bad mistakes in my estimation in within one week on 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 his social media. Um, I don't know if you saw what I posted, Sean. Did you see that? Yes, about uh, I, I saw the thing about the the picture with William Chung. <laughs> right, which I thought was brilliant because I mean, for them to post that that. The, Bruce Lee was in the picture of William Chung, and he's not. Right, right, right. Now I couldn't tell you like who he was in with. Yes. But I knew I knew that wasn't William Chung. I mean, anybody that's involved with, you know, Wing Chun for more than an hour know that knew that that wasn't William Chung. Right, right. Well, there there were a couple things. I mean, even if you didn't know that that was not William Chung in the photo, um, if you've ever seen photos of William Chung from that time period, he was not built like a bodybuilder. Like that guy that is in the photo with Bruce Lee is clearly a little bit like of a bodybuilder, right? Um, right. And, and at that time, although William Chung was known as a very fierce fighter, um, William Chung was not built like that. But the other thing, too, is that is actually a photo from the early 60s. That's Bruce Lee had already been to the States at that point. He, in fact, he had already taught like his Seattle area group. And then he went back to Hong Kong on a visit. So William Chung wasn't even in Hong Kong at that time. He was already in Australia, Australia. Right? Yeah, right? So um, that guy was one of uh, Bruce Lee's childhood friends. His name was uh, Robert uh, Robert Chan, so Chan Law. But, and as a matter of fact, that, that buddy of his, Bruce Lee later put him in the movie Way of the Dragon. Uh, he, he plays one of the waiters, but he's like the only waiter that doesn't have any speaking roles. <laughs> so apparently, you know, Bruce wanted to give his childhood friend a role, but didn't want like, you know, but knew that he couldn't act or something like that. So so right, Rob, right, Robert right. Chan actually doesn't really say anything in, in the whole movie. But um, what's interesting is that, um, you know, as many people know, uh, Bruce Lee and Yip Man, especially after... Bruce Lee had gone to the States. Bruce Lee and Yip Man's relationship was a little, um, I'm not going to say rocky, but let's just say it wasn't always great, especially later when it came out that Bruce Lee had created his own style called Jeet Kune Do, right? Which from a Chinese standpoint is a little bit of a slap in the face of your Sifu, right? So um, what's interesting though is despite the fact that Bruce Lee did have uh, a bit of, uh, I'm not going to say falling out, but just let's just say he had a, a bit of a rough patch with his Sifu. He still ended up actually taking a, uh, doing a photo series in the early 60s with Yip Man, which ended up being one of the few technical photo uh, shoots we have of Yip Man performing Wing Chun and even performing Wing Chun in sequences. If you look at it, there are some photos of Yip Man like doing some kick defense and doing some punch defense and stuff like that. And his partner 
in those photos is Robert Chan, the guy in that photo with Bruce Lee. And so that was taken, I, I would assume, the same day. Bruce Lee did some photos with Yip Man. Robert played a bad guy. You know, he, there's some photos where he's like grabbing Yip Man's hand and he's like kicking Yip Man and stuff like that. And so, um, so, so it's interesting that, you know, despite there's some what would later become a rough relationship, uh, one of the only avenues of us ever seeing Yip Man somewhat perform Wing Chun with a partner is actually through this very photo shoot that Bruce Lee did with his friend Robert Chan. But anyway, the, the Instagram account of Bruce Lee posted a photo of Bruce throwing a kick near his friend Robert Chan. And they said, Bruce and William Chung. And this is not William Chung at all. Um, and and like you said, I think it was it was pretty obvious it was not William Chung, right? Yeah, I mean it was ridiculously obvious. It was... Right. So, um, but anyway, like clearly, whoever handles the social media at the Lee Estate doesn't have a fact checker or doesn't really care to 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 look twice at who who that person was in there. And the the the, the first faux pas they made earlier in the week, or maybe it was even last week, was they posted a photo of Bruce next to a, a famous director named Zhao Yun. And said that this was on the set of Fist of Fury. And first of all, it was not on the set of Fist of Fury. And second, it was at Shaw Brothers like a year later. And so, like, you know, I just look at this stuff and I go, what hack is standing there going, this is Bruce on the set of and just making shit up like like as if right. they're not total. And I'm not the only nerd who noticed this. It's like, you know, and these are easily verifiable things. You can even Google it and, and see where, where that photo was taken. Right. So I don't know. I, I think whoever handles the Lee Estate social media needs to be fired and they need to get somebody, I don't know, who knows what they're doing. But anyway. <laughs> but I digress. But I digest, yes. We have a topic well, tonight. We do have a topic tonight. Mm -hmm. The topic, that, the main topic tonight, by the way, we want to thank uh, Sifu John Crucioni for being the sponsor of tonight's main topic. The, uh, the main topic tonight is the last nine months of Bruce Lee's life. Yes. Um, Alex is, uh, as, as he put it himself, he's gone down the rabbit hole of the last uh, year or last nine months of Bruce Lee's life. Yes. And, and, and finds it really interesting. And he was telling uh, myself and John Turnbull about it before the podcast started tonight. And we agreed that it would, it would make for a great topic. It's not so much as a discussion topic for me and Alex and John to talk about, It'd be more like a an Alex monologue, but life is like a life is like an Alex monologue these days anyway. <laughs> so, um, but I'm actually very interested in hearing about it. So, yeah, I think, uh, we, you know, so I think, and we have a lot of Bruce Lee fans uh, as uh, listeners to the podcast. So. Alex, tell, tell us a little bit about the uh, last nine months of Bruce's life. So, so, I mean, like, you know, fans of Bruce Lee uh, are often into, like, different segments of his life. And I just want to say, like, for me, I find Bruce's entire life absolutely fascinating, given the time period that he lived in, like his early time in Hong Kong, his development in the U.S., um, you know, and also through Sean finding, you know, meeting Steve Golden, finding out about that period. There's just... There's just so, so much stuff about Bruce Lee's very short life that is really rich that you can really mine and get a lot of information out. It's really remarkable how much he accomplished in 32 years. But I'm particularly fascinated. So from a martial arts perspective, the most interesting Bruce Lee stuff happened in the U.S., 
you know, in terms of his development. I mean, would you, would you agree, Sean, that, that despite the fact that he learned Wing Chun in Hong Kong, I mean, his real development happened in the States, right? Well, it was in the States that he, that he turned his life around. Right. I, I, when I say turned his life around, I mean, not so much that he, he turned his back on what he was doing before, but he became his own man while right. he's in the States. Yes, yes. And you so know, he, he, he chose not to teach Wing Chun. Right. He chose to roll the dice and name his system his own system, and that's where he became his own man. Yeah. So, like, you know, I, I just I almost need to, like, hedge anything I'm about to say with, look, I'm a huge Bruce Lee fan, and the thing that I like about Bruce Lee most are uh, were his martial arts. I find that infinitely the most fascinating thing about his life. So uh, I'm not somebody who harps on his death or who harps on controversies or any of that kind of stuff, right? So uh, it, it's important for me to say that because there's tons of people out there like, you know, you know that Bruce Lee was murdered by the triads, right? You know, there's like, it's a bunch of knuckleheads out there. They're going to tell you weird shit. But the thing is, what, what I think what people forget is Bruce basically went to Hong Kong at the tail end of 1971 to make the big boss. And he died in July of 1973. That is not a lot of time from basically be, being somebody who had a TV show in the U.S. to being the biggest star in Asia to suddenly dying. We're talking about like a very, very tumultuous, let's say two years tops of his life. And that is a very short time to become one of the biggest stars of any genre. And what people forget is Bruce was only 32. And I don't know, what were you like, Sean, when you were 30, 31? If you had suddenly become one of the most famous people and recognizable people in New York City, as Bruce was one of the most recognizable people in Hong Kong, what do you think that would have done to your psyche if you went from zero to that, like, I, I mean, like, as an honest question? Right. Well, you know, the truth of the matter is, is it, it's got to blow up your head and, and, and leave you in so much self-doubt. Because you kind of feel like at some point he knew the world was watching what he did. Even right. if it was a segment, a segment of the world, the martial arts world was watching what he did. And, and I'm sure he felt um, external pressures as to being a good represent, a representative of the Chinese culture and community within the United States. And, you know, it's, it, it had to be a lot of pressure for the man. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And Hong Kong especially at that time, was such a fishbowl. I mean, he, it was a very small city, and there he is, like, you know, and like he said, he felt like he was like an animal in a cage and everyone is looking at him, right? And to a certain degree, Bruce had, had sought after this stardom for a long time. He wanted to make it in Hollywood. And when that didn't work, he basically tried to go through the back door, basically do what Clint Eastwood did. Clint Eastwood went to Italy and did those spaghetti westerns. And then, then the, they were big hits, and that's how he got back in. That's how he got into Hollywood. And Bruce thought he would do something similar uh, based on uh, uh, James Coburn's uh, suggestion. He'd go to Hong Kong, make a few movies that would be big hits, and then come back to Hollywood with some kind of, you know, cred under his belt, so to speak. As a matter of fact, when Bruce Lee came to do The Big Boss, he didn't even permanently move to Hong Kong. He just had like a temporary place over there because he thought he was going to commute. Uh, he'd be like in L.A. part of the time and just go to Hong Kong to do those movies. He didn't expect to 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 move there. And so what's interesting is that at no time in Bruce's like U.S. martial arts career 
did he really have any massive health problems? Like Bruce had some issues or whatever, but he, you know, he was somebody who took really good care of himself. And in that last, in those last two years in Hong Kong, Bruce had a tremendous amount of physical issues with weight loss and with things like acne and, and like, and, and all sorts of things that like, he didn't really seem to have in, in the U S and it seems that that's a, a huge part of that had to have been the stress that he was under trying to like constantly top himself with the next movie, you know? Well, I mean, did, did Bruce Lee hurt his back as portrayed in that movie or? Uh, he did hurt his back. He hurt his back weightlifting. Unlike the kind of fish story, right. the dragon, the Bruce Lee story, getting kicked in the back by, uh, by Wong Jack man in an underground fighting pit in San Francisco, Chinatown. <laughs> <laughs> he was doing good mornings, right? That was the yes, yes, which is not the smartest. Uh, apparently, he was doing a bunch of good mornings, which is some kind of lift with a bar uh, uh, and some weight where you kind of like straighten up. It's for your lower back, and apparently, he did it without properly warming up, and and you know hurt one of the discs in his back. And this would be something that would basically haunt him for the rest of his then at that point short life. Uh, and and he had to take medication for that, and so on and so forth. Um, but what was interesting is that uh, Bruce Lee was five foot seven. Okay, I'm also five foot seven, and um, most of the time when you when people ask what was Bruce Lee's weight, most of his students will say he was like about 135 pounds, maybe right at five seven. I'm 170 pounds at five foot seven, but I have a very different build than Bruce Lee. Uh, but Nine months before Bruce Lee passed away, he went for a procedure at Kanasa Hospital in Hong Kong on the island side where he had the sweat glands removed from his armpits, which is like crazy. And if you can imagine that procedure also in 1972 was probably like nowadays oh, you, you can nowadays you could probably go to like a corner place that does like uh, eyebrow threading. Done, they right. could probably take it out with lasers. Right. But back then you can imagine he had to go under general anesthesia. And we, we know about this because when Bruce Lee died at the inquest, um, they had to basically release a bunch of his medical records from like the last couple years. And this is something that's public record. And it's interesting. This was in November of 1972. And for reference, Bruce Lee died in July of 73. So, you know, we're, th we're in that nine month period. Uh, they had to put him in general anesthesia to take the sweat glands out. So he was totally under. And the doctor advised him that he rest more between films and he gained weight because Bruce Lee was in November of 1972, 124 pounds. And wow. and that is not just just as a side note, I have underwear that weighs 120. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, think about it. Let, let, let's think about like uh, guys in UFC who fight at 125 pounds. All right. So which is uh, um, what do they call it? They go flyweight. Right. Um, so. Most of the dudes who fight at flyweight at 125 pounds are like 5'1", 5'2". Right, I was going to say 5'1", 5'2". Right? right, and of course you might have an occasional dude who's 5'7", who just has a very skinny frame, right? But what you also have to realize is that those dudes, let's say they're 5'4", fighting at 125, they're still cutting weight to make 125 pounds. Right. Okay, Bruce was 5'7", and walking was walking around. around at 124 pounds. That is... That's pretty emaciated. And based on a lot of the articles that I had uh, read about, especially during this final period in his life, 
um, he had a really hard time keeping weight on in that last period. So uh, if you're 32 years old and you have rapid weight loss, um, something's going on. You know what I mean? Like, like, like you, you, there's definitely something that's not right. You know what I mean? So, um, by the way, can you guess why Bruce Lee had the sweat glands removed? I have no clue. No guess. John, you, would you venture to guess why he had them removed? Uh, to look better on camera. It, it was purely uh, superficial because if you look at Bruce Lee pre November 1972, like in when he did Big Boss, um, he would often have pretty ominous, like, uh, sweat stains under his arms. And apparently that really bothered him because he'd be like in photos with these Hong Kong starlets. And it was like it was like an antiperspirant commercial, like, you know, the be- <laughs> the, the before commercial uh, be before photo. Right. And apparently th- that really bothered him. Uh, so he actually had them removed purely for vanity purposes. Now, if you have ever been in Hong Kong, which is hot as hell, the last thing you want to do is remove your body's natural ability to dissipate heat. <laughs> Yeah, really. So um, I, I couldn't imagine that given the amount of weight loss he had, why uh, why doctors would be like, yeah, this is a perfectly legitimate procedure for you to go through right now. You know what I mean? Um, it, it just seems seems a little bit off. So th- why I talk about the last nine months is it kind of starts with this thing, right? And um, I don't know, as somebody who doesn't follow that period of his life as much, did you ever look at those photos of Bruce Lee, like in Enter the Dragon, and think that he looked a little bit gaunt? There was times when I looked, when I did look at Bruce Lee and say, "Wow, he looks a lot thinner here." Yeah. But I, to be honest with you, I growing up looked at Enter the Dragon, Bruce Lee and Enter the Dragon. He like when he spread his lat muscles in the back. And yeah. To me, like that was like like the epitome of what someone should look like. Right. You know, and um, to realize now how unhealthy he had to be at that point. Yes, yes. Because that was, Enter the Dragon was right before, because he never saw Enter the Dragon come out. No, so, right? so uh, for reference, Bruce Lee died in July. Uh, Enter the Dragon began filming in February of 73 of that same year. So he shot it basically, let's say, February and March. And then post-production, dubbing, editing, all that stuff. And it came out like a week or two after he passed away. So apparently wow. apparently Bruce did see the film. He saw a rough cut of it without the soundtrack. Which is funny because the soundtrack is such a big part of that movie. The Lalo right, Schifrin. Sure. Dun, 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 dun. So he, yeah, had, yeah. he had apparently seen a copy of it before that was added in. So he did see it in some form. Um, but yeah, it's kind of it's it's kind of sad. But But you're basically... When you see Enter the Dragon, you're looking at Bruce Lee within five to six months of his death. Like that that that's how close it was. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. Yes, and, and the scene where he's closest to his death is actually the opening scene of the film where he fights Sammo Hung at the temple. That opening scene of the film was actually the last scene that they shot. And if you look at that scene, he is super super skinny when you look at his leg he's even skinnier than he is in the rest of the movie when you look at his legs he's wearing like that it's the way they have that mma fight and he's wearing like that bathing suit that speedo and and his thighs look like toothpicks man right and he's completely striated and that's literally the last time bruce lee was on 
uh, movie, like on movie camera. He did some interviews shortly before he passed away, but that was his last movie scene was the opening scene of Enter the Dragon. Um, I and- mean, we, we know Bruce Lee was not shy about taking steroids. I wonder if he was also taking some sort of um, water pill to, to drain the water out to show as well. So well, I know like bodybuilders would do that before a show. Right. Like, you know what I mean? To get that, to, to yes. get like nothing in between the muscle and the skin. Right. I wonder if Bruce Lee was doing that to well have a better appearance on camera. Well, what's interesting is um, Bruce Lee, according to a number of sources, since his, like you mentioned, his back injury, he was taking high doses of uh, cortisone. And cortisone is a steroid. But in the early 70s, they didn't know as much about the side effects of it as they do now. And so the doses he was taking uh, uh, probably gave him like a meta, like, like an anabolic steroid effect where he was able to gain muscle. But the problem is that the prolonged use over time, certain system in his systems in his body would probably shut down. And that's probably what might have led to his weight loss. It was all the cortisone he was taking. It was like it was like a diuretic because if you look at his body at the very end, he looked like a bodybuilder and that he like you said, he had no water between the skin and the muscles. Right. right? Exactly. And that could have been uh, uh, an unintended side effect of the cortisone he had been taking since his back injury. Now, what's interesting is you do notice there is a change be about Bruce Lee's body from uh, big boss to way of the dragon. So if you see like, you know, way of the dragon, there's that scene where he opens the window and you see his lats and he's just jacked. Yep. Right. And if you look at his body there, because for me, uh, way of the dragon where he fights Chuck Norris, that's Bruce Lee in his peak physical form. I think he's better there than he is in enter the dragon. He's just more cut in enter the dragon, but he's more jacked in way of the dragon. So, right. What's interesting is part of the reason why Bruce's body had changed so much between, like, uh, let's say the Green Hornet time and and Big Boss and then suddenly Way the Dragon was because Bruce Lee had bought a Marcy machine and had it in his home. Until that time, Bruce Lee had to use when he was in Hong Kong, he had to like go to gyms or he had to go to some places that had some fitness stuff. But when he got all when he finally got a home in Hong Kong, he bought a Marcy machine, which is basically like um, it's one of those. Yeah, it's a universal where you got all the exercises on there. So he had it at home so he could literally spend all of his time just working out like a maniac. And you see there's a huge change in his body composition from the time he got the Marcy machine from before that time. And perhaps there's something about that muscle tone mixed in with maybe some a lot of loss of water because of the prolonged use of cortisone. So I don't know. But certainly a five foot seven guy, even though he's a very slight frame at 124 pounds is not healthy by any stretch of the imagination. Right. So. Bruce was also under a lot of stress and I don't I think people sometimes underestimate how much stress affects people physically like you know I mean I, I you, you live in New York Sean I'm sure I, I'm sure there have been times where you were so stressed out that you physically got sick from it especially in my business yes yeah absolutely um, and and so you have to imagine that Bruce now had three mo- by by that last period of his life he had three movies, each one was a bigger hit than the one before, so wow. you're on that streak. So now suddenly, based on these three movies, he gets his chance to do what he always wanted to do, which was to do an American film, and he's doing it with Warner Brothers. 
So now this is his big shot. This is what he had put all of his chips on going to Hong Kong for, and it finally worked out. And now he has to he has to deliver. And it's like, and what if this movie is not that great? You know what I mean? And sure. so you can imagine the performance pressure there. Not to mention, and and this isn't a conspiracy theory or whatever, but. Bruce and Raymond Chow. Raymond Chow was the guy who ran Golden Harvest, and Bruce's first three films were made with Golden Harvest. Um, Bruce had formed his own production company called Concord, and he wanted Enter the Dragon to be like a co-production between his company and Warner Brothers. And, of course, Golden Harvest had something to say about it. And Bruce and Raymond, their relationship got a little bit salty in that last period of their life. And Bruce was playing Raymond Chow pretty hardcore uh, because you uh, do you know the other studio in Hong Kong that was opposite Golden Harvest? Shaw Brothers. Shaw right? Brothers, right? And Shaw Brothers, they uh, initially, when Bruce came to Hong Kong, he went straight to Shaw Brothers and said, like, hey, I'm here from the States. I want to make films in Hong Kong. What do you got? And Run Run Shaw basically pushed a standard form contract in front of Bruce Lee's face. Like, what he pays his normal low-level guys. And Bruce Lee looked at that, and he was like, fuck that, and left. And right. and then later, he got the deal with Raymond Chow, who was a former Shaw Brothers employee, um, considered kind of a, a rebel, a disloyalist to Run Run Shaw, an upstart who started his own company. And he was like, all right, Bruce, I'll give you like a two-picture deal, and we can, uh, and, and we can negotiate a little bit, right? Based on the strength of those movies, Run Run realized he had made a mistake. And so uh, apparently the story was he had sent a blank check over to Bruce Lee. And apparently uh, I heard this story. Someone who knew Linda Lee or had met Linda Lee said something like she might still have this check. It's a blank check written, signed by Run Run Shaw from Shaw Brothers Studios to Bruce Lee. That's how wow. bad. That's how bad. Uh, uh, Run Run Shaw wanted um, Bruce. Like he realized he had made a mistake, right? So at this point, Bruce had some leveraging power between Raymond and Shaw Brothers and all this stuff. So at the time he made Enter the Dragon, he was like in this little war with Raymond Chow, where Bruce would actually go to Shaw Brothers Studios with a bunch of reporters. And have himself photographed hanging out with Shaw actors. That's how cunning Bruce Lee was. So he would go there and he would be with like Chen Guntai and Dick Long and all these like famous people from the Shaw stable. And that photo that the Lee estate got wrong where he was with the director Zhao Yun was at Shaw Studios. And that was one of those photo ops where he was messing with Raymond Chow. Like, hey, I'm over wow. at your main competitor, your former boss. And, you know, what are you going to do for me kind of thing, right? Sure. So Bruce was a very shrewd businessman, to say the least. So um, so anyway, finally, the deal gets struck with Warner Brothers. And it's like a co-production with Raymond Chow. And Bruce is somehow involved, like his production company or whatever. But Bruce is not entirely happy about it. So they start shooting. I think the... Um, the, 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 it started shooting at the end of January, Enter the Dragon, like uh, a very, very end of January. And Bruce does not show up on set for a couple weeks. And he does it almost in protest because he's not happy about the deal. And also there are other people that say that he was straight up nervous because, again, he's got all this stress. And there's other people that say he was too effing skinny and he was worried about how he looked on camera. So we uh. don't we don't know why, 
but uh, Sekin, the guy who plays Han, right, uh, for the, the the villain in Enter right. the Dragon, he talked about how Bruce Lee didn't show Bruce Lee didn't show up on set until like February fourteenth, like two weeks after they started shooting, and they were trying to shoot because it's a Hollywood production. They're trying to shoot every scene that doesn't have Bruce Lee in it, like right. William Williams and Roper and like the, the the praying mantis fighting each other and like all those other seeds. And they're starting to freak out, like, where the F is Bruce? And so it's not 100% sure why Bruce didn't show up, but he either was protesting, he might have physically not been in the shape to show up to the studio, or, um, you know, there might have been some other, you know, some other thing going on behind the scenes we don't know about, right? But it's interesting, it's not normal behavior. You know, I mean, think about how disciplined Bruce Lee was. Do, do you think, knowing what Steve Golden has told you about Bruce Lee, do you think that Bruce Lee at that time period would have not shown up for two weeks on the set of a major film? Right. Well, that's what I was going to say. The next question to you was, what was his personality like during that nine-month period? Because you hear so much about, like, roid rage. And, like, I know from somebody in my family who had to take uh, steroids for health reasons that when they take the steroids, they become, like, an angry person. Right. And I was wondering, what, what was Bruce Lee's personality? Did it have a, uh, a huge change in his personality? Or were there, were there stories of him losing his temper and stuff over that last year? Well, Bruce always there were always stories about Bruce Lee losing his temper. So I don't think it, that was necessarily new. But one thing, and of course, this is all hearsay. I mean, first of all, these are 40-plus-year-old stories sure, right, where right, right. it's like some dude said this, and who, who, who knows how many times that story's been transmuted or changed by the time it gets to this podcast, right? So, I mean, again, for all of our podcast listeners, you really need to take any all of this stuff with a grain of salt because, again— I wasn't even alive when any of this stuff was going on. So I'm a dude telling story. I'm telling you shit that I heard, right? Which take it for what it is, right? But um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was quoted as saying that in that last kind of period, like the, let's say in that last nine month period when he talked to Bruce, Bruce would repeat himself pretty regularly. Like he would tell stories that he had already told many times. And that he seemed like a little bit off his game and he seemed like wow. like something wasn't there. And there are a number of people, uh, including uh, Sekin and, and other people who knew Bruce, that, that and they all said the same thing. Bruce was repeating stories that he had already told again and again, and that was not something that he used to do. So clearly something might not, something might have been off. Um, now, this is, of course total speculation all right and again um when we go down the rabbit and, and i'm trying to talk about the last nine months of bruce lee's life and avoid the big elephant in the room which is how he died because i'm not going to touch that with a 10 foot long pole i i i, I there there are three main theories um one is the theory that the, the the official one that he had hypersensitivity to something that was basically aspirin. So Bruce Lee in in the history of the world is the first person to have an allergic reaction and die of aspirin in his sleep. All right. So there's one person that's had that effect and that guy was Bruce Lee. So uh, the second one was that uh, he might have taken some tainted cannabis. Right. Or that there might have been some foul play afoot. And the third one is Matt Polly's heat stroke theory, which is also quite plausible. There's also a fourth theory that Bruce Lee was straight murdered. Um, 
I don't I don't subscribe to that, but I'll tell you what. I will occasionally go down the rabbit hole and go like, all right, there are people online who subscribe to this and they have very well thought out theories about Bruce Lee being murdered. And like, I'm very, uh, I'm like, whatever, I'll, I'll go down this rabbit hole. I'll read what they have to say. And some of it is kind of interesting. And a lot of it, you got to take on faith. There is another theory, though. And this, I actually, I, I, I read this recently online. And the first time I heard it was 10 years ago by somebody in Hong Kong who knew Bruce Lee. And I'm not going to say who it was, Um, but like somebody that knows Bruce Lee about 10 years ago in Hong Kong told me this one time over dim sum in a very offhanded way and and didn't even like emphasize it. And I never thought much of it, but uh, I actually came across online. Somebody had said the same thing. And there's a theory that Bruce might have had a brain tumor in the last period of his life. Um, and because of him fainting and falling and his weight loss and his change of skin tone and his constantly repeating stuff, and that that may actually have been what he had. Now, I don't know. I mean, right. th- it's difficult to say, uh, uh, but if it later turned out that that was it, it's pretty plausible. It's it's pretty plausible. But But that's like... I suppose a fifth potential theory about Bruce Lee's death as if we don't have enough already. So, um, yeah, his behavior was definitely considered erratic by a lot of people who knew him. Um, yeah, like, well, so, you know, there, there, there is that. So, um, did you have anything to add to that before I go into the really weird stuff? <laughs> oh, there's weirder stuff, huh? You were having, yeah, um, there, there, there is some, there is some weird stuff. Um, there's some weird stuff, not to go down the rabbit hole if he was murdered, but Bruce Lee had some issues with triads towards the end of his life. Um, it, it, have you heard the story about the guy who challenged him on the set of Enter the yes. Dragon? Okay, yes. it's a very famous story that they were. Um, uh, as as most people who've seen Enter the Dragon know, there were a tremendous amount of extras on that film wearing the white karate geese, right? And uh, some of these guys were actors, but most of these guys were literally just street kids that they had like rounded up and gave given them a uniform. And some of these guys were um, low level triads. And so um, uh, triads, for those people who don't know, triads are basically Hong Kong gangs and they're kind of four stages of triads. The lowest level of triad is uh, is a recruit. That's like a kid on the street maybe 16 years old, gets recruited, and <laughs> what's going on there? <laughs> oh, don't worry about it. It's my doorbell. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, you know, these guys don't really have a lot of power, and these guys hope to become what's known as a 4-9. A 4-9 is kind of like they're officially a triad, but they're kind of like they're the soldiers. They're the, they're the kids that do all the dirty work. And so I think there were a number of 4-9s who were hired as extras on the set of Enter the Dragon. In any case, one of these guys challenges Bruce Lee on dur- during a break from filming. So they're, they're sitting on the ledge there, and one of them basically says, like, hey, are you really as fast as they say you are? And then, you know, Bruce is like, well, you can come and try me out. And, the, and the, guy, the guy jumps down from the ledge and basically challenges Bruce Lee in front of everybody. And the story was that, you know, before this... Uh, challenger had a chance to even move move. Bruce had kicked this guy in the face and when the guy tried to smile it off 
he had like blood coming out of his mouth and it was like a pretty bad like pretty bad loss for him right and bruce like let the guy stay on the set he didn't kick him off or anything like that and so but the story was the next day that kid that challenged bruce lee he was murdered wow and and so because apparently some of the higher ups and this was not and by no means am i saying this was at the behest of bruce lee it's just that they were some higher up people who felt that what this kid did was really disrespectful um, and uh, apparently the next day that that kid was stabbed to death. <laughs> and, and so, um, wow. yeah. And so they, they were like, and that is not necessarily trouble that Bruce Lee had with triads directly, because if anything, I mean, it didn't benefit Bruce, but that was kind of on Bruce's side, so to speak. But this gives you an idea of how intertwined um, triads were, especially in the uh, up until 1974, before they formed the Internal Council Against Corruption in Hong Kong, triads were triads are triads are still a fact of life in Hong Kong, but before 1974, they were really a fact of life. Like they were something right. that everyone had to deal with, and so, um, you know, like Bruce was starting to uh, make some friends with certain triad members and make some enemies with some other ones. The um, the, the, the two competing triads, so there's, the triads are like kung fu schools. You have one main kung fu school, and then you get a bunch of people who break off and create their own styles, which become splinters off of the original one. But, like, the two kind of granddaddies of, of Hong Kong gangs, uh, is one is called the 14K, and the other one is called uh, Sun Yi'an. The 14K was founded in 1949. The Sun Yi'an was actually a little bit older than that. And Sun Yi'an is probably the number one triad. So Sun Yi'an is Coca-Cola and 14K is Pepsi. And, and right. so just to kind of give you an idea, but both of them are the top ones. Everyone else is like a distant, distant third and fourth right, place, sure, right? Sure. So um, you kind of either did business with Sun Yi'an or you did business with the 14K. <laughs> and by the way, in Hong Kong today, in 2019, it's the same way. Those two gangs are still the top ones, and they've been the dominant forces. Now, uh, I, I, I'm not at liberty to say this because I'll tell you what, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I will never say on a podcast who Bruce Lee's enemy was because this guy is still alive. So I will just tell you um, that th th there's a lot of very suspicious stuff in terms of Bruce Lee's, um, uh, some people might say, his recreational can cannabis use towards the end of his life and who had access to his supply. And, and uh, there's also a lot of evidence that suggests that people were trying to perhaps deal with him in, with poison or something like that, which sounds wow. like a super fucking conspiracy. But Bruce Lee very famously carried a thermos on the set of Enter the Dragon. So when he was on the set, as a matter of fact... Uh, the, the the Lee estate even posted a photo. Wow, it's kind of loud there. What's going on? <laughs> Sorry, the dog's running around. All right. Uh, uh, so there's even, even the Lee estate posted a photo of Bruce on the set of Edge of the Dragon with this famous uh, uh, thermos. And this is not a total conspiracy because even I think Robert Klaus, the director of Edge of the Dragon, talked right. about how Bruce Lee flipped out when an extra got too close to his thermos. 
And wow. so there's reason to believe that Bruce Lee, and maybe it was just, maybe he was not poisoned. Maybe he was just paranoid that he would be poisoned. But there was something going on where Bruce definitely felt, there's, I should say this. I shouldn't say there's definitely. I should say that there is evidence to suggest that Bruce Lee was a bit worried about his personal safety in the last period of his life where he was very protective of things of like what he drank and what he ate. And so uh, and there's also photographic evidence of this kind of stuff. So, wow. um, yeah. So um, uh, and, and this came from one of the heads of one of those two, I'm, I'll just say of a large triad organization. Right. And, and I'm not going to say who it is because that person's still alive. So uh, um, th there, there is evidence to suggest that there was somebody who actually did have a personal vendetta against Bruce Lee. And, and, and so whether and look, that does not mean that that person had anything to do with Bruce Lee's death. Uh, none whatsoever. Bruce Lee could have died very well of heat stroke. He could have died of taking a damn aspirin. He could have died of taking the wrong cannabis. He could have just had a stroke. He could have had a brain tumor. Who the hell knows, all right? I'm not saying he was killed by triads, but I'm definitely saying that there were some triads who were very upset with him towards the end of his life. I'm just going to say that. So, okay, so uh, for, in case any of the triads from Hong Kong are listening right now and getting upset. <laughs> when is your next visit to Hong Kong? <laughs> Not in a million years, son. I'm, I'm going to go to Hong Kong with masks now, right? And so, uh, um, yeah. And, and uh, also another thing, too, is at the time that Bruce Lee shot Enter the Dragon, he wanted to actually leave Hong Kong. Um, he wanted to actually go back to Seattle, of all places and spend his time maybe like live in Seattle and then go back to Hong Kong to shoot films. Um, Bruce had even told uh, one of his students, I think he had even told Richard Bastillo or uh, Daniel Lee or somebody, he said that Hong Kong was getting a bit wild. And wow. so, and, and so uh, he wanted to actually get out. And there were people saying, no, we don't think that that's a very good idea. So I, I don't think... You know, whether you want to and look, if, if there are people out there listening to me, they're like, dude, Alex is just full of shit. He's gone totally tinfoil hat on us. Conspiracy theory, whatever. Look, I'm not saying that I, I'm telling you what I heard. I'm not telling you I necessarily believe all these things. Um, but uh, I, I, do, I, I think they all paint a picture of Bruce Lee being not in a good mental and physical state in the last period of his life. I don't think the last few months of his life were happy, despite the fact that he was essentially peaking in terms of his stardom, at least during his lifetime. I mean, one could argue he actually peaked after he died, but during his lifetime, that kind of was the peak for Bruce Lee. I don't think he really enjoyed that time period that much. I think he probably, probably missed the days where he was kind of just teaching Kung Fu in LA at that period, because I don't think I don't think those were happy years. And so um, I don't know if I had, if you ever had the chance to talk to Steve Golden. I know that he didn't really have a lot of contact with Bruce Lee during that time period of his life. I don't know if he had none or if he had any or if, or, or he had ever told you I, anything. I, I don't. Yeah, we, we spoke about it a little bit, but he didn't have a lot of contact with Bruce Lee after he left the Chinatown school. He kind of moved on. He got married. There was that kind of, uh, you know. His, uh, his life changed, you know. It's, right. Uh, but uh, that was incredibly interesting. I was much more interesting than than even I had thought of it being. Like, I, I, when we talk about Bruce Lee like this, I, I find myself sitting and saying, wow, you know, I really got to get 
look into this more because I do find it more and more interesting as we talk more about Bruce Lee. Yeah. Like, um, you know, I, like I said, I've never been a big Bruce Lee guy. I've always been a JKD guy. Yeah. And I, and I really do find it more and more interesting when you talk, talk, tell a story like this. I, uh, I, I really appreciate that. Um, on a side note, since we're going to be ending this in a couple of, in about a minute, um, I just saw on my phone, I got a pop-up, Robert Garrison passed away. And for those who don't know who Robert Garrison is, um, if you watch the original Karate Kid movies, he's the young man who yells, you know, get him a body bag, that, that guy. Yeah. And he, he passed away today. Yeah, I, 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 I just I just read that too, and also for peop, for fans of the Cobra Kai series, he's in right, he's, he's in season two. Right, he's part of the Cobra Kai series as well. So. Yeah, and and he did an amazing job, and and the episode that he's in is is actually my favorite episode of uh, both seasons. I think is I don't want to give any spoilers away. Right. Um. Uh. It it did actually look though from the episode that he was legitimately sick in real life and not just. You know, right. playing someone who was sick in in, in the show, but uh, yeah, it's really sad. Um, uh, y- you know, trying to pass our condolences along. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, he was uh, that movie was big when I was growing up back then. You know, when we first had talkies, and uh, it was it was you know that was a big movie. And um, as a martial artist growing up, everybody you know flocked to the movie theaters to see that. And I'll yeah, I'll remember that my whole life. Yeah, 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 absolutely. All right, guys. Well, hey, this was a lot of fun. By the way, I barely this even scra- I barely even scratched the surface, but I hope that wasn't too much, like too tinfoil hat for any of our listeners. No, actually, I would love to, to go go more about this. Maybe maybe next week we can talk a little bit more about it. I I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very interesting. I uh, want to thank John Turnbull for for joining us tonight. We didn't let you talk too much. I apologize about that. <laughs> hey, but, no problem. You know, Thanks for having me on. Talking, yeah. you know, it's just. It is what it is. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, before, thanks a lot. Well, before before we go, John, just give us just tell people how people can contact you for for if they're interested in taking uh, kung fu lessons in Cleveland. Uh, sure. The easiest way is uh, the website is immortalpalmcleveland.com. dot com. Excellent. And, uh, that'll find me. All right. Very good. All right, guys. We'll see everybody next week, and uh, have a good one. Take care. Thanks, you too. Take care. Okay. Thank you for listening to our latest episode. Please help us get the word out there by sharing this and other episodes on your favorite social media platforms. If you're enjoying the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast, there are many ways in which you can support it. Go to dudesofkungfu.com slash support to find out how you can help your favorite Kung Fu podcast. We are currently using Patreon to automate great benefits to those who support the podcast. As a supporter of The Dudes, you'll get early access to episodes, as well as a number of other benefits based on your donation level. This includes in-depth topic lectures and even monthly live video conferences with The Dudes. Again, go to dudesofkungfu.com support to find out more about that. As always, you can help support us in small ways as well. Give us a like at The Dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page and share links to episodes. If Twitter is your preferred social media outlet, you can follow The Dudes of Kung Fu there as well. Both Big Sean Madigan and yours truly are on Twitter, too. Dudes of Kung Fu is now also on Instagram, so tag it along with the hashtag Dudes of Kung Fu whenever you post something related to the podcast. A great way to support the dudes is to rate and review it on either the iTunes or Android app stores. The written reviews are immensely more helpful than just giving us a five-star rating. 
If you have any suggestions for topics or guests, please write us at the Dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page. Please understand that neither Sean nor I can guarantee a response, but we will consider any serious suggestions. And finally, I ask that you help spread an open dialogue with other practitioners of martial arts. Chinese Kung Fu in particular has long since suffered from caustic political discourse, which can only change with you. Remember, the person you wholeheartedly disagree with doesn't love martial arts any less than you do. Take care, and thank you for supporting the Dudes of Kung Fu!